you know, Cole, I, I love doing this show, but there's something that really bugs me about it. No, what, what's that? Well, you know, we, we play these games, we talk about them for a couple hours, but I'm always left with questions that are unanswered. You know what? I kind of feel the same way. Like, you know, I always kind of wonder what Dr. Tongue's relationship was like with his father, you know, from Zombies Ate My Neighbors, right? Right. I mean, and is he like a medical doctor? Is he a vet, a dentist? I mean, he could just have like a doctorate in music and still be called a doctor. Yeah, like an honorary degree, you know? Yeah, yeah, from some kind of, I don't know, haunted university. And and then, you know, I was reading these, these dev documents on Call of Cthulhu, and they were talking about how there's this whole fun boring segment, and there's a, a, a can, cotton candy gun. And all these things that I know that they were cut out, but I don't know why. What game yeah. was that? Uh, Call of Cthulhu. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, because I was reading this other thing. I heard it had like a big head mode, but I guess I took it out because it didn't, you know, it didn't really fit in with the mythos. Uh, you know what? Like, I heard there was like this nudity mode that was cut out of Klonoa, and I would just really like to know why they did that. Yeah, and I'd really like to see it. I mean, I just really like to see it. Just really, like I yeah, have written just, that just sounds pages and pages. Of, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm not going to see it, I want to write about it. Yeah, and then, uh, but you know, I mean, I, I guess like you can't get everything you want, you know. Yeah, I guess, but in a completely unrelated yet somehow convenient note, uh, check out this thing I got at a garage sale earlier today. That's pretty cool. Is that a, a gold floppy disk copy of Maniac Mansion? I know it's boss, right? It's kind of like uh, Zelda, you know. Yeah, yeah. Why, why? Why are you rubbing it like that? I don't know. I just am compelled to. Hey guys, I'm Ron Gilbert. What's up? What? <laughs> My name is Gary Butterfield. My name is Cole Ross. And also with us is Ron Gilbert, uh, creator of Maniac Mansion. And you're listening to Watch Out for Fireballs. This is our retro video games podcast. And this week, um, as you've probably figured, um, we are talking about Maniac Mansion. Uh, Say hi, Ron. Hey, hello. How's it going? (laughs) It's going great. This is uh, just an unparalleled pleasure. Um, So Maniac Mansion, as you know, if you listen to us and know about our adventure game geekery, um, is a point-and-click adventure game that was originally developed for home computers uh, by Lucasfilm Games in uh, 1987. And uh, the cre- the key creative minds behind it were Ron Gilbert and uh, Gary Winnick. This uh, this game opted not to use a, a text parser, so in- instead this had it was the first title to implement the Scum engine, which is the skip, uh, script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. So instead of you know typing your commands, you had access to a list of verbs that could be used on items in the environment and items in your inventory. 
And this uh, engine was used uh, for the for the great majority of LucasArts adventure games uh, through up until I believe Full Throttle was the last one that used it, right? Yeah, I believe that's true. Yes. Now, Maniac Mansion, of course, is beloved for its humor, um, which became a hallmark of the adventure games that uh, Lucasfilm Games and later uh, LucasArts uh, would create. You know, it's really heavily narrative-driven, uh, featuring cutscenes, um, a term which, you can correct me on this, but most of the sources that I found um, says that you coined the term cutscene. Is that, is that correct? Can you take credit yeah, for that? Yeah, I, I believe that is actually true. Um, there was a there was a command in the scum language called cutscene and and whenever you wanted to do a cutscene you would just you know execute the cutscene command and the reason that i named them cutscenes um came directly from maniac mansion because in maniac mansion the cutscenes cut away from the gameplay into this other scene. So you would be playing, uh, you know, with Dave or Razor, and then there would be this cut scene to Weird Ed, where <laughs> the game would cut away to this other scene, and that's why I called them cut scenes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. It does. Um, it does. Yeah. yeah absolutely. That, uh, that, that cut scene thing, one of the things that is really impressive about that is that uh, it made it feel like there were other things going on. In the, in the game at the same time. So since you're, you're supposed to be adventuring in this house that is, that is inhabited, um, that really contribute. you know, not only would the inhabitants walk in on you and you're always in danger of being caught, but there were things going on at the same time. Really yeah, I mean, that was, you know, kind of one of the reasons that we had did those is to, is to make the house, you know, kind of feel alive in some ways. And, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the lessons that we really learned by the time we got around, you know, to doing, uh, you know, games like Monkey Island was that in Maniac Mansion, when the cutscenes would happen, they would just happen no matter what it was you were doing in the game. So you could be right in the middle of, you know, constructing some sentence or right in the middle of, you know, taking something, you know, out of the refrigerator and this cutscene <laughs> would just happen. And that was a little bit disorienting you know, for players. And, uh, you know, one of the lessons we learned was when we are going to have cutscenes that, you know, cut away from whatever the player's doing, we should, we should wait until the player isn't doing anything really important. You know, wait till they're like walking out a door or wait till they've completed some other action. And I think by doing that, you know, I think it really helped, you know, the pacing of a lot of the adventure games that we did after Maniac Mansion to not have those cutscenes just, you know, yank control away from the player at unsuspecting moments. Although, I mean, one of the interesting things was, and you don't see this on the, um, NES version of Maniac Mansion, obviously, but on the Commodore 64 version, which was the very first version of the game, it had, you know, it came on a disc on the disc drive. And we had, we had this software that we had written that would load information off the floppy disk in the background, you know, so while you were playing the game, we would be loading stuff in. Um, so when cutscenes happened, they could happen really quickly. But what that meant was that five or six seconds before a cutscene would happen, the little disk drive light would come on. Oh. And so it's like every time that light came on, it's like everybody would go, oh, my God, Nurse Edna's on her way down. Or, oh, my God, where, <laughs> what, what, what's Weird Ed doing? So that, that, that little disk drive light kind of became this Pavlov's dog 
in kind of a, you know, horror sense that when that <laughs> light came on, people would like panic for a couple of seconds. And, and probably still to this day. <laughs> do, do, do you yeah. ever get therapy Any time it described light comes on, people just freak out all over the world. Because <laughs> You, you hear the disc drive thrashing, and then all of a sudden you're just sweating and cowering in a corner. Yep, and you don't you don't know why. It's because Edna's on her way down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, uh, this never happened to me, but were there uh, safeties in place where if you were having an interaction with one of those characters where a cutscene couldn't trigger with that character? So if you were happened to have just uh, stumbled into Weird Ed's room, um when you were there, could the, the doorbell ring and, and his package arrive or anything like that? Yeah, we did. We did have we did have safety mechanisms, um, you know, for things like that, so they wouldn't happen. Mostly, we just tried to space the cutscenes out in such a way that mm-hmm. you know things like that wouldn't happen. But you know, the example that you mentioned, it's like yeah, you can go into Weird Ed's bedroom anytime, you know, and then mm-hmm. the package you might do it right before the package arrives. So there was a little bit of safeguarding we had to do around those things. And if, if they were timed out, uh, you know, around long regular intervals, so are there ones that happen later than I'm expecting? So, I, I mean, can I reasonably say that if I've, you know, played this game in the average amount of time that I've seen all of them? Are there things that, you know, kind of pick up the pace or things that maybe is, is kind of like deep content that most people aren't seeing because they haven't waited long enough for these to, to show up? No, you'd, you'd seen them all. If you, okay. if you'd played the game, you know, through normal gameplay, I mean, even speed running, you're going to see them just because, you know, they do get triggered, um, you know, after certain events or timers would happen, um, you know, after something would happen, like, you know, after you have, um, you know, um, done something with, the, with the telescope, there would be this timer would start and, you know, then we would know two minutes later we were going to trigger, you know, some kind of a of a cutscene um, for that stuff. So yeah, I mean, you would have you would have seen it. Okay. There's something so beautiful about the way that those cutscenes kind of come in, though, which is directly tied to the fact that you might be right in the middle of doing something, which is like they're going to be coming, and I have to think, where is everybody? Are they in the path mm-hmm. of what's going to be <laughs> happening there? So right. it's it's all of a sudden like just a complete gut check to make sure that everybody's in a position to where it's not going to mess up my my, my plans. Of course, Dave's going to be in the dungeon, but where's, ben, where's Bernard and Michael, you know? <laughs> right, right. So. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, kind of a you know, an unintended consequences in a lot of way, you know, cause we really weren't thinking that deeply about a lot of that stuff at the time. Um, you know, it really was the first game that Gary and I had really designed ourselves. You know, we'd worked on a lot of games, but it was the first one we designed and we just weren't thinking about a lot of stuff. And I, and I think a lot of the, you know, frustrating things that are in maniac mansion are because we really didn't think about things but I, but also some of the you know more charming and interesting things about the game are also because we just weren't thinking about a lot of things you know so there were some some interesting things like you know what you just mentioned which did kind of come out uh, of that right and one of the things that I, i've seen in um in interviews or, or things that you've done where you talk about uh uh, flaws in, in the game that had been rectified in later games. And you talk about um, player death and, uh, you know, making, uh, kind of having some of those dead ends to, to certain outcomes because of that. And that became, you know, when you talk about uh, flaws that are actually kind of interesting rough edges, um, when I, you know, 
looking for ways to kill these kids was thrilling to me <laughs> as, a, as a kid. Uh, you and, should you should really seek help for that. <laughs> well, you know, between that and the uh, the disk drive light thing, I'm going to send you a bill. I, I have seek help. <laughs> Dr. Noreen Reardon will be in touch with you shortly. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that, I mean, I found, a, I found a lot of fun to be had in, in that and just yeah. kind of discovering. And part of it is that, you know, did the developers think of this, you mm-hmm. know, bit, you know, with the, uh, I remember the, the one that, that impressed me the most, and even though it doesn't seem that obscure now is, uh, leaving the kid in the bottom of the pool. I yeah. kind of thought that that would just take care of itself and, right. and he would climb out, but nope. Nope. <laughs> Graveyard in the front yard. Yeah. No, I mean, we did have to think about a lot of those situations because, I mean, had we not thought about the kid, you know, in the bottom of the pool and, and the code had just ran, he, he just would have been, you know, still standing in the water. So, right. you know, there are, there are things like that that we did, you know, we did need to deal with that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, just finding all those weird cases. But, you know, being able to kill characters is somewhat liberating in a way because, because you can just have cataclysmic things happen that just completely screw up the player's game. And that's kind of okay. Where if you're designing a game, you know, like when, um, you know, I did Monkey Island, having no death in that game was super, super important to me. And, so there were a lot of situations that we had to make sure that, you know, the player and Guybrush could not get into situations where the player could completely screw up the game and never be able to get out of them. So, you know, that created a whole different, you know, kind of game design challenge uh, from the Maniac Mansion challenge, which was more like, you know, we just have to deal with the fact that these kids are being, you know, killed and destroyed and the game might actually be un- unwinnable you know, at some point in, in a lot of cases, when one of the kids dies or you enter into one of these things, it would be a fail state. Um, you know, there are some ways to, to permanently make it, you know, impossible to finish the game, but it's, there are a lot of times where that will happen and there's still a way around it. You know, you can, you can complete the game with two kids. You can have, you can have somebody die or you can, uh, this playthrough that I did for the, this episode, I was going for the, the manuscript ending because that's, mm-hmm. that's always been kind of my white whale. Right, with Wendy. So, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, I, I, I tore the envelope and, uh, because I wasn't managing my saves well, I couldn't do it, but it was still possible to, to complete the game just through a way that I hadn't been working towards mm-hmm. until that point. Right. And, uh, I, I imagine that, you know, when you start thinking about that and that those consequences of killing those kids, it probably kind of challenged you to, to reroute the flow of the game in, in a lot of different ways, which ended up being this huge boon to this game. You know, the fact that it is so, there's so many different ways to accomplish all of these goals that you have. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish I could say that we were that smart, but we, <laughs> but we really weren't. Um, you know, when, when you would get into situations where the game became unsolvable, we just, I mean, I know this sounds really cruel and callous, but we just didn't care <laughs> because, because that, that is kind of what games were like back then. Um, you know, adventure games, you know, starting with text adventures and certainly, you know, the very early Sierra games like, you know, King's Quest one, which, you know, had come out before Maniac Mansion, you know, players killing themselves and getting themselves screwed and forgetting to pick up, you know, an important object and not be able to get it again. This was just the way games were done. And to some degree, players expected that stuff to happen. 
And that's why they saved the game five or six times. Because mm. if they realized, oh, I, I forgot to pick up the pencil when I was in New York, well, I'm just going to go back to my save game where I was in New York, and I'm going to remember to pick up the pencil. So so actually saving and loading the game was part of gameplay. Right. You know, you, you just strategically had to had to think about where all your save games were to work your way out of those uh, those situations. So we really didn't spend a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out how to work you out of a dead end that you'd worked yourself into. I think it just naturally happened because we had, you know, a bunch of characters with a bunch of different solutions to puzzles. And so if you screwed yourself on one way, there was, you know, probably another way to get yourself out of it. But that, but that certainly wasn't by design. One of the things that's really interesting about, you know, the fail states in this game, you know, there, there are probably three or four that I could think of off, off the top of my head, things that will make the game unwinnable, but there are numerous ways that you can enter what on its surface feels like a fail state, which is the dungeon. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny because, you know, you, in order to, in order to win the game, you have to be imprisoned in the dungeon because that's where right. the door to the, you know, to, 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 to the lab is, you know, how much, how much thought went into, you know, treating that as like this soft failure state, you know, putting in the, the trick brick and everything like that. Well, the dungeon was, was very specific. You know, we, we definitely knew that we wanted players to be put in the dungeon and we wanted people to feel a little bit like, uh oh, you know, did I screw myself over? But that was really just, you know, kind of part of the story. Right. Um, and the experience. So, you know, I think that was kind of the one case where we were, very consciously, you know, thinking about, um, you know, about, about the dungeon. Well, it's, it, it's funny because the thing that affords you the, you know, the, the opportunity is to put in these different failure and success dates is the fact that this is just an incredibly nonlinear game, which was right. pretty novel for its time, you know, at, at that time in the eighties. Right. Yeah. I mean, having, you know, different characters, um, and not just different endings, but just different ways through the story, was was a pretty novel thing you know it wasn't it wasn't the kind of thing that a lot of people were doing i mean i don't think it was the first but but it probably was kind of became the most popular thing to do that at the time so one of the one of the things i noticed um, when we talk about uh having these multiple you know characters they can choose and they're, they're each having you know different paths to this the same same goal um one of the things i noticed in replaying it is uh when, when you design the characters for it. So, you know, Sid and Razor have, uh, uh, you know, kind of duplicate functionality. Dave has some duplicate functionality. Was this, um, you know, was, what was the, was there a, a process behind doing that? Or was that something where, um, you know, cause part of the fun is figuring out what they can do, mm -hmm. you know, when you're, when you're playing it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so is that something that, uh, you know, you have these kind of, I mean, I don't want to say red herrings, but you want to have these, these characters that it's not necessarily immediate obvious, immediately obvious what they can do. Um, I know that there's a, you know, Michael, there's a mention um, that he's a photographer. So that makes sense. And Bernard is the nerd character. Mm -hmm. um, but with the things like with Jeff and the telephone um, or seeing it as trying to suss out differences between Sid and Razor, is that something where like, what was the, the thinking kind of behind that? Well, I mean, it started with Gary and Ike coming up with these characters and, the different endings that they had and the different puzzles that they could solve really flow very flew very organically out of us designing the game. You know, we didn't we didn't go into this with this big matrix of characters and, you know, kind of construct the design 
you know, kind of mathematically based mm. on this matrix. We, we, you know, we just started with characters that we thought were, you know, interesting and funny and then tried to work the puzzles around them. And, you know, in some of the cases, like, I think Jeff is a really good example. Um, you know, I think he's somewhat of a failure. You know, in a way, because his he, parents he, probably he, think so too. <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. He's, <laughs> you know, hangs out on the beach all day long and surfs and stuff. But, but you know, he he just he was a character that Gary and I liked because we kind of liked you know we liked that surfer guy thing. But we just we never really found a good use for him, and and even his ability to you know fix the telephone was something that we just threw in towards the end because we realized, you know, he has absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, and and that's the most that we could really come up with him was the telephone. And I and I and I honestly don't remember why we even thought that was reasonable, you know, for a surfer guy to be able to fix a telephone. But some of that. And I think with Sid and Razor, I mean it's the same thing, you know, um you know, we really liked those two characters a lot. But they really became, in some ways, the same character because they they did solve most puzzles the exact same way. Their endings were exactly the same. So you know, just a little bit of we liked the characters and we weren't we weren't, we weren't real willing to get rid of them. You know, we didn't we didn't have the maturity as game designers to go. You know what? We have to pick Sid or Razor, and we need to put in another character that's different. You know, we just we just didn't. We just weren't thinking along those lines at that time. So, so what you're saying is that there's not a hidden version of Maniac Mansion out there with a surfing mini game that makes Jeff make sense. <laughs> no, there's not. I'm afraid there's. <laughs> but I did. I did own a pair of swim trunks that looked exactly like the ones that Jeff is wearing. Do, do you still have them? I if, don't. If I, I, I don't have them. But you know, on the cover of the Maniac Mansion um, box. Dave is wearing this gray Lucasfilm t-shirt. Mm-hmm. You kind of look really closely, you can tell. Um, and that was a t-shirt that I had at the time. And I actually still have that t-shirt, which is, you know, what, the t-shirts Dave was modeled on on the cover of Maniac Mansion. Nice. That, that, that's excellent. You, when you were talking, we were talking about um, the planning part and just kind of on the, the subject of still having things around. One of the things I was reading about uh, with the development of this game is uh, how when you were in the design process, you created a board game version of it with, with a map and overlays. Yeah, a little bit like a board game. You know, we had drawn, we had this big piece of, you know, poster board that was, I don't know, like three feet by four feet. And we had drawn little squares on the board for every room in the mansion. And then we had little lines, you know, that connected the rooms based on, you know, what, what rooms were connected to what rooms. And so Gary and I would sit down and we would, you know, have little, you know, chits that we would put on the board for the different characters. So, you know, we would move, you know, Bernard from one room to another and we had written down, uh, you know, all the objects in the game, you know, where the telephone was and where the cassette tape was and where the telescope was. And then we would actually play the game on this board, moving these little people around, solving the puzzles you know, to try to make sure that, that we didn't, that we had not designed a puzzle that was unsolvable, right. you know, because you needed object A, you know, to get object C, but you needed C to get A, you know, that kind of circular, you know, right. reference stuff. 
um, you know, we just, you know, we needed to make sure that that stuff, um, wasn't in there. So we actually, you know, played the game on this uh, piece of poster board. So it was a physical way to do like rapid prototyping without like actually just drawing a flow chart on a whiteboard or something like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, by the time, I guess it was, I guess the first game we used it on was the Indiana Jones and Last Crusade game, which, you know, I did with Noah Falstein and David Fox. But I had come up with this whole thing called a puzzle dependency chart. Mm-hmm. And it was a way to map puzzles out on paper. And it would, you would, the, the way that they all would be connected together, those kind of circular puzzles would just naturally fall out of that puzzle dependency chart. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really easy to see whether you had made those mistakes without having to go through, you know, what Gary and I did with the, with the Maniac Mansion board. Right. As a two part question, does that board still exist and can I be added to a will of some kind? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't exist. You know, when I was, when I did the talk at GDC, you know, the making of Maniac Mansion talk, uh-huh. I really wanted to have a picture of that board. And, you know, I called up Gary and, you know, asked him, I said, by any chance do you have that board? And he's like, no, I don't. So I think it's gone. Oh, heartbreaking. Start watching Storage Wars and just cross my fingers. That... I mean, it's probably sitting in someone's basement right now somewhere. You know, it's, it may still be in existence, but I don't know where it is. That's so that, that that's so funny. Like, just because, like, even even without playing the game, I can kind of, like, walk through it in my head, you know? It would make a great board game. I mean, it's a, <laughs> a Maniac Mansion, you know, board game, I think, would be a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right. We're all agreed. Finally. Get on it, Indie Devs. Get on it, Indie Board Game Devs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, do, do we want to take a look at the plot just a little bit? You know, what, 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 what there is of it and kind of look at some of the, some of the inspirations that, you know, made you choose to make the, like a meteor, the, uh, the ultimate villain of the game? Yeah. The meteor. The idea from the meteor came from, God, what was the TV show? There was some TV show. It might have been like an HBO show. And there was this episode which starred, believe it or not, Stephen King. Really? And yeah, Stephen King. And he played this farmer that one day out on his farm, you know, kind of this hillbilly farmer, one day out on his farm, this meteor landed in his backyard and the, the meteor just slowly, I guess it had some kind of fungal growth on it or something. Mm-hmm. And it slowly just physically enveloped him and his house. And that was kind of an episode that both Gary and I liked a lot. And, and that's really where the kind of the idea for the meteor came from was, you know, from that episode of, um, of that show. And I don't remember the name of the show. I think it was an HBO show and it did star Stephen King. So I'm pretty sure that, you know, Google probably knows the answer <laughs> to that question. Was the, uh, what, what was the inspiration behind making him, uh, always want to have been an author? Cause that is one of my favorite touches in this game is that you have this, uh, evil mind controlling meteor and you know, if you can get him a book contract, Right. All bets are off, and, and he, he wants that. So that, that that's delightful. That's it. Yeah, I think you know that probably just you know weaved into you know Wendy's story and you know how 
you know, how is she going to have an ending? How is that really going to matter? And, you know, which kind of just flowed into, ooh, you know, hey, what if, what if you got him a writing contract? Uh, you know, so that, that was very, a very puzzle oriented, uh, plot device. Yeah, the, the tentacles just want to make it as well. Yeah. Like everyone just wants to be artistically <laughs> but, successful. But don't they? Don't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, purple, purple tentacle just wants to be loved. He wants to feel useful. Whereas green tentacle, he is a depressive binge eater who wants to be a punk musician, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Purple Tentacle's evil. Well, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's a classic. Classic right. henchman. Is this, is this, is, was any of that a cry for help, Ron? Like, was there any, <laughs> were, you, were you wanted your band to be picked up? It, I'm, I'm joking, but I also, I, you know, I, on your, your blog, there's a lot of uh, kind of vitriol about the process of, of you know, getting something made mm-hmm. you know, and, and everything. And, and was that something that was a frustration you felt then? And that's kind of where the satirical, you know, three guys who publish anything... Uh, the ease with which that happens in this game. Was that intentional? Was that something that, that was on your mind? No, not really. I mean, I, I really can't emphasize this enough. <laughs> is that Gary and I had no idea what we were doing. You know, I mean, Gary, Gary and I really were, we were just a couple of guys that like to sit around and think up funny stuff. Mm-hmm. And, that's really, you know, where the game started was, you know, and, and any, you know, anything funny that we thought of, we just kind of threw into the game. And the fact that it all worked out as well as it did, I think is, you know, some somewhat random luck, you know, in some ways. Well, you were operating under very little oversight at the time, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, Lucasfilm Games, when I started at Lucasfilm Games, there were seven people that worked there. And when we started Maniac Mansion, that number was probably nine, right? So, I mean, it certainly had not grown very much. And it's not really to say that we weren't under supervision at all. We just had, we, we had a, you know, we, we had a mandate from the company to just go do really interesting things. So, you know, it wasn't that we were just, you know, kids running wild, but, we were kind of chartered in some ways to go do these really interesting and innovative and different things. So it, it, it allowed us to really think about things very, very differently and not, you know, be under a lot of market pressure or financial pressure or any of the other things, but, but just to think up really fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of changing gears uh, just a little bit. One of the things that I know, um, you know, that I've read when I, I've, about the creation of this game is that, um, you know, about you playing King's Cross 1 and, and being frustrated with that, the text parser there. And one of the things uh, Cole brought up in, in our Facebook group was how um, this game, you know, a text parser, you have the, the illusion of unlimited options for what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this game kind of reduces that, you know, and gives you a, a, a verb set that is, that is, you know, more manageable as opposed to, to everything. Um, do you have any feelings on the kind of, I feel like the adventure game genre you know, we've never gone back to that text parser, but right now we have there. You know, there are games where you have the the verb set, regardless of how you want to do it, and then there's the the kind of mist style. That's another game we've done for the show where you have the the one click contextual right. thing. Is that something? Yeah. Well, what's, well, I mean, what's happened? You know, if you kind of if you kind of look at the the evolution or de-evolution, however you want to phrase it, of of the parser, is that, you know, the verb set has just become reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced, you know, and, 
you know, Maniac Mansion had, you know, push, pull and turn on and turn off, right? As, as different verbs. But, you know, uh, in Monkey Island, there was no turn on and turn off. There was only push, pull. You know, we just kind of reduced that down. It's like, well, we don't need those because we just, you know, have these ones. And then eventually adventure games have gotten to the point where there's only one verb now and that's just use. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think, you know, you just find this trimming down of the verb set from the unlimited verb set of the parser and then, you know, being trimmed down to what we have today, which is essentially the use verb. Um, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I, I often ask myself that, you know, is, have we gone too far? You know, is, is the fact that you just, you just click on something and then it just naturally does what it's supposed to do. Is that, is that taking too much choice away from the player, especially when it comes to puzzle solving, you know, where you're supposed to think about, you know, what verb should I apply to this uh, particular thing? Well, when you reduce the number, the, the number of verbs, you almost have to increase the number of nouns that are available in order to kind of like compensate for that loss of complexity, right? Yeah, and you know, you see that in this, uh, you know, inventory bloat that happens in adventure games where, you know, people are carrying around a hundred different things now because there is only one verb. So we need to make sure that, you know, you have to use something, you know, in a hundred different ways before you find the thing that you, you know, that you want to use it for. Right. Well, there, there's a puzzle in, in Maniac Mansion that I, <laughs> playing it after the fact, I, I see it as a subversion of that. But recognizing how early Maniac Mansion came, I, I like I recognize that that is temporarily impossible unless you were you know tapped into some kind of like awesome tech that I'm not aware of, um, time travel you know because I be time travel. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but the but the whole feeding the green tentacle thing where you go into the kitchen and you pick up every single piece of food under the sun, and ultimately what he what he eats isn't food. It's the it's the wax fruit from the from the uh, from the art studio. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Was that a commentary on anything, or or, or were you just being like really funny? <laughs> no, I think that's. I, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like a social commentary on you know poverty, <laughs> class warfare, or you know uh, wax fruit or anything. It was. It was. It, I mean, it, it kind of falls into that kind of standard trope of adventure games, which is using items in in odd ways. Right. You know, so you're cleverly, you know, we give you a wrench and then we expect you to use it not to turn a bolt, but we expect you to use it in some other way. And that's where the wax fruit was, is we're going to go, yo, this is wax fruit, but <laughs> tentacle will still eat it. So I think it was it was just that kind of wacky, you know, adventure game logic. Yeah. And, and with his... Like and with his eating disorders, he probably took a lot of trips to Hobby Lobby to, you know, to save that, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the tragic uh, garbage can in the bathroom of Green Tentacle. That <laughs> tells the, the saddest short story. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But... Uh... I don't even know. I just I, that that's one of my favorite puzzles, and I remember that being you know being very young, pl- you know playing. I'm I'm incredibly sorry. The NES version of the game, um, uh, getting getting stuck at that at that portion, not not recognizing that I had to feed him the wax fruit, and right, th- right. that's that's where Maniac Mansion ended for me for a very long time. 
but uh, I loved everything. Be- before you solved the puzzle, or or you rage quit after realizing that was a solution. You know, I don't think that there's any like as as a as a four year old or whatever, or five year old or whatever it was when I learned how to read. I don't think there's any other way to quit a game <laughs> than to rage quit. <laughs> yeah, that's so true, isn't it? He's quit. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't like you you either turn it off of your own volition because you're. You know, you're bored or you're angry or your mom tells you to turn it off because it's dinner time. And so. that's true of a lot of 40-year-olds, too. I just want to make sure. <laughs> the circle of life. <laughs> so, so yeah, just uh, that like that that one sticks out of my mind so much because that's where the game ended me ended for me for so for so very long. Right. Let's play Microsoft for that or <laughs> NES. So either the NES port or Microsoft, we can throw the blame on that exactly. one. Exactly. Well, I think that blame lies in Gary and I's feet, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, uh, one of the things when you talk about the fruit and this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, but, um, one of the things that, that's really rich about this game that is, uh, kind of a, uh, an opportunity that comes with the, the genre that you chose or the, the, the kind of, the, the touchstones is, is, you know, the humor in the game, which, you know, we talked a lot about, but I'm still, this time when I was playing through it, you know, I'm still kind of noticing things, which is crazy because I played through this game, you know, I don't know, 10 times total in my life. And mm-hmm. in, in the room where you pick up the wax fruit, the fact that somebody has an easel set up and is just painting a bland picture of a crate uh-huh. in front of them <laughs> is so good. <laughs> it's so funny. And like, you, I love that approach to adventure games because, you, you know, having these kind of, you know, adventure games, as much as I love them, um, you do, like, you kind of go from puzzle to puzzle, you know, in these. And having these little background elements or these kind of throwaway gags or throwaway things are just uh, uh, really important, I think. And this is the, the first, you know, uh, evidence of that that I remember seeing. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that I, I worry that we're losing a little bit of in in kind of modern game design just because games involve so many people and that when you have projects that you know are staffing 30 or 40 people to make things or hundreds of people there develops this rigid process right and you and you have to have that process or nothing would ever get done but because of that rigid process a lot of that just weird wacky improv stuff sometimes gets gets pushed away where you know in a game like maniac mansion you know gary did all of the art in the game you know every animation every pixel that's on the screen was done by gary and there was just myself and david fox doing all of the programming for the game and when there's this very small group of people like that you can just riff off of things you know a lot um, a lot easier and um, you know, you see that a lot in, in, you know, games like Monkey Island, which was also a very small team of people. You know, it was a, just, uh, you know, a handful of artists and, you know, it was myself and Tim Schaefer and Dave Grossman, you know, doing the programming and doing the writing. And, you know, we would all just kind of riff off of stuff all the time. And it was so easy to put stuff into the game that if we if we would say something funny at lunch, it was in the game that afternoon. And you just you don't have that anymore. You know, if you're working on a big game and you say something funny at lunch, 
it has to go on a task list and then it has to get worked into the schedule and, you know, five or six items down the chain, it's just no longer funny anymore or, you know, and so I think it's, it's really important for projects when they get a lot of people to really try to keep that energy of just being able to throw funny shit in the game anytime you think about it to really try to keep that alive. So what you're saying is Edna would not have been a sexual deviant if there were more hands in the pot, <laughs> more kiss in the kitchen, as it were. Yeah, um, no comment. <laughs> you know, all the people in Maniac Mansion are based on real people. Really? Yes. Every single person in that game is based on actual real people. Even Weird Ed, the uh, the, the the militant yes. uh, Dylan Weird Ed, type? Dr. Fred, Edna, Sid, Razor... Wendy, all all of those are based on real people. Yeah. I know. So, I know some of the female characters are based on girlfriends, but yeah, Razor was um, Gary's girlfriend. Her name was Ray, and uh-huh. uh, so uh, Razor is based on him. Wendy, she Wendy is the woman who worked at Lucasfilm Games and did all of our finances. Uh huh. So you know she um, you know did all that, and her name was Wendy, and she was in the game. Um, some of the characters, uh, you know, Gary and I have sworn ourselves to secrecy about who they're actually based on because they're not <laughs> particularly flattering. Um, but uh, every every character is actually based on somebody we knew. I, I'd read on uh, on the always always accurate Wikipedia about how uh, uh, Edna was uh, some at some point there was a rumor that it was based on your mother, and then you have denied that. Yeah, that's then, that's not true at all. So, so, it, but is it also one of those people that you are sworn to secrecy about? Yes. So, so the air cannot be cleared. It's a, a pan. No, uh, I'm afraid it can't. cat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for, maybe on my maybe on my deathbed, I'll cough it out. <laughs> but that's yeah. it. Well, it's it's one of those things. I mean, if we're if we're talking about the characters, Weird Ed is my favorite character in the entire game. Uh, yeah, I just, he's funny. Just uh, this the, the this militant he's got he's got the, uh, the 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 plans and the charts and the and the pet hamster, <laughs> right? And that chart that's on Weird Ed's bedroom wall that is the chart that Gary and I made to play the game on. Really? Oh, really? Yes, yes. That's that that chart that hangs on his wall is based on that little chart, that little map that Gary and I made that we played the little board game on. Nice. That's excellent. I'm, I'm going to print that out and make a blown up, uh, incredibly low resolution version. Of <laughs> yeah. The 10 inch it'll, pixels. It'll look kind of like the Syrah painting in the, uh, in the dining room. <laughs> <laughs> also, do you, I mean, do you have, uh, uh, you know, do you have any of the, like your favorite jokes that are in this or are there anything where you, I know that you said that you, if you guys were just kind of dicking around at lunch and, and said something funny, it would, it would go in the game. Was there anything that, I mean, and this is a lot to remember for a long time ago, but that uh, you know, didn't end up making it in or anything that you're particularly proud of, uh, just kind of humor or tone-wise in the game? I think just the general tone, you know, of the humor and that everything was just kind of weird and a little bit, you know, off-kilter, off you know, is something that I've always really liked about the game. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things, you know, to me is there's is something I kind of always remember from this was at the very beginning of the game, you know, Dave says, you know, don't be a tuna head. <laughs> it's, you know, one of the lines that he says, and that line makes no sense, right? Don't be a tuna head. I mean, that, that makes no sense, right? And originally, Dave said, don't be a shithead. That, that makes tons he, of sense. Yeah, that yeah. makes total sense, right? Don't be a shithead, right? And 
So that's the way I had originally written that line. And then the guy who ran the Lucasfilm Games Group, who's a great guy, um, he said, you can, you cannot say shit in a Lucasfilm game. And I just, I just rebelled against that. It's kind of like, well, how dare you tell me that I can't say shit? You know, you're destroying my artistic vision, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And, you know, so we kind of went around and around and around on this. And then, you know, finally he said, okay, look, you go off and you really think about why you need to swear in this game. And if you can, <laughs> if you can come back with a compelling argument about why you need to swear in this game, I'll let you put shit in the game. And, so I went off and I thought about that and I thought long and hard about that. And I, I just kind of realized, you know, I don't need to swear. It's mm-hmm. like Dave saying, don't be a shithead. It was just, was me just trying to be cool, mm-hmm. right? Because swearing is cool. And I just kind of realized, you know, that's really true. I don't need to swear in this game. And so I changed don't be a shithead to don't be a tuna head. Um, just because I just wanted to have, you know, some different words for that thing. Mm-hmm. But it's it's weird because that one little lesson has just followed me through everything. It's like I just I don't swear in games. I don't yeah. swear in stuff because I just I just kind of realize, you know, it doesn't add anything. And you know, whenever I'm playing a video game and the characters swear, it just it always just comes off as odd because it just feels like they're just trying to be realistic or they're just trying to be grown up. But they're just there's just no reason for them to be saying those things. Right. They're they're being a little razor when they could stand to be a little bit more Bernard. <laughs> that's what that is. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the overall lesson, you don't have to work blue. It's at all. Exactly. <laughs> Did, uh, that, so, that story is so paternal. I, did he ever catch you smoking and then make you smoke an entire carton? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. Not, not to, de- not to, I'm not trying to undermine that. Cause I, I mean, he's, he's right. And I, I agree when I see, uh, and cause it's a, you know, the definition of gratuitous, right? Where it's, it's just there and doesn't add anything. It's just there for excitement or titillation. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when I'm watching, you know, network television, and, you know, even if it's a show about, you know, mafia guys or whatever, I don't, I don't really notice a lot of times that they're not swearing, you know, because I think, I think sometimes swearing is just a, a crutch that you can fall on with writing. You know, it's just, it's an, it's a cheap way to get across character when there are actually much better ways to get across character. And I think having characters not swear it just, it really makes you think about what you're writing a lot more. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I've, I've come to feel the same way, uh, when, in watching, uh, you know, movies and such. Um, similarly about sex scenes, mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I feel like they're largely, you know, unnecessary and just, right. you know, it can be important to the plot. Unless you're does. watching porn. Well, then <laughs> I fast forward through all of them. I don't know what you guys are doing. Right. And, and I'm doing something wrong. You just wrong. skip to the dialogue. It, and... it, I, I keep watching porn, but it's not working. It's like, <laughs> why are you wrong, guys? Why is that cable guy here? I don't understand why that cable guy's here right now. Yeah, Let me fast forward to the story and figure out what his motivation is. This is the episode where Ron Gilbert teaches me how to watch porn properly. <laughs> 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 but, but I mean, it's, it can be important to the plot that they have sex, but I don't really need to see it or to linger on it, you know, that much. That you, you watch, you mean, if you go back and watch a lot of movies that were made in the seventies, 
one of the things that's really interesting about those movies is just it's just uh, the the vast number of people that just get naked for no apparent reason. <laughs> it's like every movie made in the seventies that had an R rating had to have some woman with her shirt off. It was just mandatory. And you just don't see that today. You know, you just, you rarely see that in movies today unless you're very explicitly, you know, that, that, that's very, a very important part of the, of the plot. It's, it's one of those things like, you know, video games have never had the equivalent of, the equivalent of lifting the Hayes code, right? Right. If yeah. you look, if you look at the 1940s, you know, you, if you wanted to have a sex scene, you know, it's the Maltese Falcon, and then you'd slowly pan over to some curtains, and then the next, you know, you, it's the next morning. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's the sex right. scene. And then what you're, and then, like, what you're saying is you, you uncapped that fire hydrant and all that pressure released. And so, like, what we're, like, what we're getting to now is that gratuitousness and the, and the sexiness, but there's still that, that taboo against everything except violence. In games, I think that the only the only thing that we're like really rebelling against from the from the kind of puritanical uh, you know Mortal Kombat times is uh, is is language really, and that's just because we can have voice acting in games now. Right. Yeah, and you and you can do that. Yeah, you can do that kind of stuff. Where I think you know doing things like sex scenes is still difficult in games, just because we don't have the visual fidelity to make them anything but completely laughable, <laughs> you know? So, so I, I, you know, I mean, sometimes people have tried that, you know, I mean, in Mass Effect, you know, people kiss. And I mean, even, even to Uncanny Valley figures kissing is like, ew, yeah. stop that. You Why know? are you rubbing your faces against each other? <laughs> yeah. Your quote unquote yeah. faces. <laughs> so I think we've been, we've been spared from a lot of the gratuitous sex scenes in games just because, you know, we don't have enough polygons. I guess. Yeah. But then (laughs) the intersection of sex and gaming is one of my least favorite (laughs) things. My my pet topics I rail against a lot on this show is is the the internet's obsession with taking things that I love and making them fun. (laughs) It grosses me out to no end. Stop it, Sonic fans. Which, which again, is one of the things I love about Edna as a character is because every time she takes a, takes a male person to the, to the, to the dungeon, you know, uh, I should have tied you to my bed, you know, let alone the fact <laughs> that there's a manacled skeleton uh, right. <laughs> over by the other door. I just shudder at what happened to that guy. But, you know, he might have been a victim of the other uh, uh, implicit sex scene of the game with the tentacle mating call. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is, is another, uh, you know, kind of a deep cut in that game. Like you have to go you know, out of your way to, to get to that. But that is always something that I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and also uh the purple tentacle chasing sandy around i, I just uh yeah that's like a benny hill okay. <laughs> yeah well that's the best we could do with animation at the time was benny hill you know <laughs> <laughs> but i wouldn't change it world. i'd still rather just have him chasing her around i don't know as uh as somebody um so as somebody who who was one of the first people to do these cutscenes in in games um you know, at any point, so that's something that I, I think that Cole and I both have kind of talked about a little bit on the show that we feel is, is really kind of overused and everything. Like, is that something that you have a, a opinion on of, of the, the legacy of this, this kind of thing that you introduced? I'm not saying, you know, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, that you were responsible for any of the travesties that have happened in the name of cutscenes, but just kind of, is that something that you've noticed? I mean, do you have a, a take on that? Do you think that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I I do think they're really overused. You know, when I'm when I'm playing a game, 
I want to play the game. You know, I don't want to watch a movie. And if I want to watch a movie, I want to go watch a movie because, you know, people who make movies do it so much better than anybody that, you know, wants to make a game but really have a movie in it. So when I'm playing a game, I, I want to be interacting with that game. I want to be doing things. And, you know, some of that, a lot of that came from, you know, when I, when I had started Humongous Entertainment and we were doing adventure games for kids. And these games were targeted at kids that were like four, five, and six years old. And one of the things that we really noticed when we would watch kids play the game is they had this 10-second threshold for losing control of the game. That if we took the cursor away and didn't let them interact with the game for more than about 10 seconds during a cutscene they would just very quickly lose interest. And so we we established this thing we called the 10-second rule with cutscenes. Because no cutscene could be longer than 10 seconds long. And, you know, that's something that I've I've really tried to do with with just cutscenes in general, is just never take control away from the player for longer than 10 seconds. Because that's when it just starts to get weird you know because you're you're playing something interactive and when you can't interact with it anymore you you know you start to get the shakes and you're all jittery and it's like a you know it's like a heroin withdrawal but with interactivity and so i think i think it's just important to keep those things as short as possible and if you look at um like the the dialogue trees that you know we when we first did those dialogue trees in the indiana jones and the last crusade adventure game uh, and then use them heavily, you know, in Monkey Island, those were really, you know, a response to cutscenes because there is a lot of exposition that has to happen in an adventure game. And we found that if we did the expositions through these dialogue trees, we, we could keep the player, you know, trapped in this conversation for sometime minutes but they never felt like it because they were always getting to choose things on the list. And we were also telling jokes the whole time. So they were laughing whenever they'd see, you know, the options come up. So, you know, if they were playing and, you know, four new options came up, you know, we got this opportunity to tell four different jokes all at once. Even if you were only going to pick one of them, we still got to tell four different jokes. So the dialogue trees really, really became kind of an answer to cutscenes in some ways for us. And that's really brilliant too, because those, those, if those four things can all have the same effect. So yeah. They, you know, they, they, in a lot of those cases in Monkey Island, it's, it's an illusion of choice. It's not like there's any choice oh, involved. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. you're still moving things along, and that's that's really yeah. smart. Yeah, and that's why. You know, that's why it was very important to me that the dialogue choices that came up were the actual things that that Guybrush was going to say. Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of games, uh, had done dialogue trees before, you know, Indiana Jones or Monkey Island, but the dialogues were, were more higher level stuff. They were, you know, like, well, be angry, be happy, you know, be afraid. Um, and it was important to me that they were the actual things that Guybrush said, 
because that gave us the opportunity to tell four jokes all in a row. Just boom, four jokes right there. And yeah, it didn't matter which one you chose. They could all go to the same thing or they could all just loop back around to the same thing. But the fact that players were getting that joke payoff just made it all okay. So, so this is this is kind of a question of taxonomy, but you know, I, I want to make a reference to an article that you wrote that Gary sent over to me and is really illuminating. Uh, the article that it's it's from your blog grump, grumpygamer.com, uh, and it's why adventure games suck, which was originally published in uh, 1989. Um, and one of the things I love about this is you refer to adventure games as 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 story games. You know, and just that, that that single differentiation between like, do we call them adventure games or story games? Like, it seems like there's a lot of weight in those terms, you know, and just like what, like what choice you would choose to make. I mean, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah. Adventure games to me have always been about stories. You know, they're not, they're not about puzzles in a way. They're really about stories and the puzzles are just the thing that moves the story forward. And so that's why, you know, I do like to refer to them or, you know, definitely like to refer to them back then as story games rather than adventure games. Because I think adventure is also a misleading term. Um, you know, the movie industry has the action adventure genre. <laughs> and when you think of adventure, it's Indiana Jones and it's, you know, doing all of these physical things. But adventure games really aren't about that at all. You know, they're, they're about very slow moving stories. They're about using your brain. They're about solving puzzles. So I think in some ways adventure games got mislabeled, you know, simply because the first adventure game was just called adventure. <laughs> and that's, that's just kind of hung with us, you know, through these ages. Um, where, where I think a story game is probably a little bit more, you know, apropos. Um, you know, but whether things like heavy rain, you know, which, I don't really consider Heavy Rain to be an adventure game in the classic sense, but it's probably much more of a story game, you know, than an adventure game. Right. Kind of, um, kind of bringing things, things home and to tie it into the, the subject and everything. So one of the things I was able to do at PAX, um, you know, in addition to meeting you, which was, was, you know, really uh, fortuitous was to get a chance to check out the cave. Mm -hmm. And, uh, to me, there are really obvious parallels between, between Maniac Mansion and the cave and that, you know, you're choosing uh, a subset of characters. You, the way you're approaching the game is dependent on, um, you know, the combination. They each have different abilities that make that. And the, the guy who is demoing the game, uh, mentioned that I wanted to get a conservation or a confirmation of this and have you talk about it a little bit. And he had said this was an idea that you had had, uh, you know, very early on. And we're, we're not able to do is that is that true or should that man be fired? <laughs> no, that's 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 very true. He still may need to be fired. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I I have no idea who you're. He talking might about. he might be really into Sonic. <laughs> um, no, that, yeah, it is an idea that I had. It, it's an idea that I had um, before I even started work at Lucasfilm, um, and it was it was just this idea about these three characters that went into this kind of sentient cave and it was this, you know, kind of metaphysical story of their, you know, journey um, through this cave discovering something about themselves. And the original, I mean, my original idea 
it was these three kind you know Indiana Jones ripoff characters. So it wasn't this, you know, diverse cast of characters that you see in the cave, but it was these three characters and you did have to solve puzzles together with these three characters and you had to, you know, work in concert. Um, you know, there were places where one of the characters would die and then you kind of have to figure out how to finish the game with only two of them. Um, there are actually places in the game where you had to sacrifice one of the characters for the other two to make it on a little bit farther. The game never really made it out of, you know, the graph paper design stage. You know, I just, I just drawn up this, you know, weird vertical cave where you started at the top and just kind of went deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But, you know, it's an idea that's followed me around and, you know, I think Maniac Mansion choosing the seven characters, you know, I, th- I think a little bit of that comes, you're choosing the three characters, a little bit of that comes from the three characters you know, that you were cho- that uh, I had in the original cave thing. But, you know, it's just an idea that's set dormant. It's like every once in a while it, you know, it comes up and I think about it and then it goes away and, and, um, you know, just a couple of years ago, I just kind of had the opportunity to, you know, make that. So I decided to make it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And kind of the most intriguing part of it to me that, and it's something I didn't get a, a taste of from the demo, um, is the, you know, what the, the kind of character's personal backstory is. Like, I'm, I understand that there's something that the characters are, are entering the cave for or some kind of something from their past or, or something like that to that effect. Like, there's some kind of personal story that's revealed through that. Yeah, every character that goes into the cave has their own story. So it's different from Maniac Mansion in that sense. In Maniac Mansion there was the story of the meteor and Dr. Fred. And the individual characters, they had different ways that they would go about, you know, solving that story or resolving that story. Where with the cave, there really are seven completely different stories that are being told. And depending on which three characters you take in, you know, you see three of those seven, uh, of those seven stories. And there's kind of a meta story that wraps everything together, but there are, there are these very distinct stories and these very distinct reasons that these, you know, seven characters are going into the cave. And I mean, it's a, I would kind of describe the game as kind of very dark humor. You know, these, <laughs> these characters are very dark and even a little bit kind of twisted, you know, at their soul level. And that's kind of what the game is really about. It's just about these kind of very, very dark people and that very dark spot in their hearts and what they learn about themselves as they go into the cave. Yeah, I, I was really excited to see it. And it's probably, you know, the, the game I was most excited about I left packs from. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah, Thank really you. Looking forward to it. Being the insufferable person that I am, I have to ask this question: How much of that is informed by the uh, the allegory of the cave? <laughs> none, none, none at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, none, none at all. I, you know, I get asked that question all the time. Really? You know, oh, is this is this you know Plato's cave an interactive form? And it's like, no, 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 it's not. Okay. Yeah, not at all. Okay. It is informed by allegory of the allegory of the cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And eventually, perhaps this game will go on to inspire its own allegories. Right. That will have to come up with a new name. It's an allegory of a video game. That's really what it is. Yeah. <laughs> allegory of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think we're probably, um, do we have any final, anything we want to wrap up with, Cole? 
Um, not not that I can think of, other than what. Um, <laughs> How, just to comment on how fortuitous it was that uh, not only did the Ed family have an Edsel, but also that it had, <laughs> you know, rocket power and that you could stow the meteor in. That's my favorite ending. You know, no matter how many times I play, no matter which characters I choose, I always throw that meteor into the trunk of that car into and blast it yeah. into space. Yeah. Well, you know, everything has an Ed, right? I mean, yeah. it's weird Ed. It's the Edsel. It's... Nurse Ed, uh, Dr. Fred, dead cousin Ted, you know, it's, it's all these, you know, it was this one thread that Gary and I ran through everything with that kind of Ed-ness <laughs> to everything. Cousin Fred. Was, was, was Ted, was Ted dead? Zed's dead baby. No, was Ted yeah. dead? And, yeah, and, he's and, dead, Edna? dead cousin Ted is his, is his full name. It's his full name. And, and yeah, Edna Ed. was just in denial then. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a sad note for us to end the episode. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, you know, uh, thank you very much, Ron, yes. for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you. I guess I, I guess that's all <laughs> I have. I, you know, I continue to, uh, to you know to look forward to enjoying this and just uh, you know, it was really one of uh, this is a, a you know I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but it is an honor to be able to do this. You know, yes. this is, uh, it's been one of my favorite games for a really long time. So yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad people like it. Yeah. Yeah. People, people love it. Like I, in kind of looking at stuff for the show, I, I didn't know the, the, you know, there, I guess there's a, a German, um, like, uh, video series that are like adventures in the world of this. I don't know if you've seen this, but there no, are videos. I haven't seen that. Yeah. No, I haven't where seen that at all. People take the sprites and do animations. <laughs> no way. It. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I gotta, can, I gotta look that up. Yeah, I'll I'll find it and I'll send it to you. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I I, funny. I don't know how to what degree they're translated, but they're huge in Germany. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Maniac Mansion was was not a a very big hit. As a matter of fact, it was almost a failure when it first came out. It was you know it didn't do well. It was it was kind of at the tail end of the Commodore sixty four, so you know it didn't do very well on that platform. Um, it didn't do extremely well on the PC platform. And it really was the NES version that, you know, kind of, uh, was the most popular version. You know, when I, when I speak to people today who you remember and love playing Maniac Mansion when they were kids, most of them played it on the NES, not on the PC or the Commodore 64. I, I like to, I mean, I, that's, that was true of me as well. And I like to hope that, you know, those people like myself, you know, kind of seeked out you know, the, the history behind the game and checked out other versions yeah. as we get older. Well, the I mean, version you just played, what version did you play? Um, we did the the enhanced PC version. Yes. Okay. Did you play it on Scum VM? Or did yeah. You play yes. It yeah. So, yeah. But, so I mean, the PC version. What, what I can say, you know, at, at least as, as somebody who, like Gary, came to it through the NES version was, you know, I, I came at it so young that it gave me this really – a, you know, kind of foundational appreciation for adventure games in general. And it's, and it's a, and it's a love that continues through, you know, to this day and has informed my taste in games, you know, up through, you know, everything that we're even doing for this show. So, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't great. mean to be like overly effusive, but this is just so incredibly foundational. It's been an honor to talk to you about it and to get some insight into what went into it. Yeah. No, I'm happy to do it. Happy to do it.
So that was uh, Ron Gilbert. He has um, left the room, but he has not yeah. left our hearts. Nor, nor yours. <laughs> I, I hope. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. That was just so cool. Uh, yeah. Okay. You, yeah. Can, you can decide if you want to keep that air or not, but just, uh, just, just, just a real delight. Um, as is this game. Um, we acknowledge that this isn't like a normal episode of watch out for fireballs. Uh, you know, it's, it's an experiment. Um, but usually we talk about the games enough to where you can get this kind of vicarious experience of having played it. But with this one, we would really urge you if you haven't played maniac mansion first, shame on you. Um, second, you know, seek it out and yeah, find, and, fi- find a way to play it. And it's, it's hard to get it to play it the original way that it was meant to be played. Um, the NES version is not that hard to get a hold of. Um, it has some fantastic... The music in this episode, um, just to make it clear, is not from the version that Ron worked on. It is from the NES version and uh, is fantastic. It's among my favorite NES soundtracks. I'm just kind of stalling so I can you know, find more place to put music in um, <laughs> because cause I love it so much. But uh, So that's not that hard to get a hold of. There's a, a remake um, called Maniac Mansion Deluxe that I believe is free to download. Um, and I believe is legally, hold on a moment, I think it's above board. So at the very least, it's above board enough to where it hasn't uh, been taken down <laughs> down yet. Um, so I, I just, I, you know, and, and it's not the ideal way to play it, you know, much much better uh, to play it on, get the actual PC files and play it in ScumVM, um, which is difficult, but I'd urge you to do it because likely, you know, if your tastes are anything like ours, which they probably are, because you listen to the show, you know, you played on something for which this has been a huge influence. Yeah, this uh, this game has tentacles, you know, not just not, not just on like all the LucasArts adventure games, which we all know and love, you know, going right into Monkey Island and then Day of the Tentacle, Ops, and, you know, Full Throttle, um, but just every adventure game that has a limited set of verbs and has that quirky set of humor, you know, um, and even today there's this, there's this, you know, revival, there's this renaissance of adventure games and all of them, the, the, the tone that they take, you know, from Telltale and... Um, I was going to say hothead, but that's obvious, you know, because yeah. that's Ron Gilbert's right. company. <laughs> working on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least formally, I think he no longer works with them. Ah, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, this is foundational. Yeah. So de- definitely seek it out. And uh, yeah. And, and uh, just, and just uh, to put this out there too, is that I was not, uh, you know, blowing any kind of smoke when I was talking about the cave. Like that game looks tits as shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just to, to, to swear way more than I need to. Tits on and a wrist. As, as, as if I've forgotten every lesson I've learned uh, <laughs> in the last hour. From our surrogate father, Ron Gilbert. Yeah, um. yeah but, but that game looks awesome. So I also encourage you guys to, to check that out. Yeah, it's coming um, out um, on most systems of note in early 2013, being published by Double Fine um, and all of that promo legalese kind of stuff. Looks fantastic. Gary got to play it. I've just been watching videos of it obsessively while speed running this game. Um, So let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about what we're doing in the next uh, 
really like kind of half a year. <laughs> we have a five-year plan. Oh, wait, no. Um, so that, uh, yeah. So 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 this uh, this this nice little bit of mana that descended from heaven, this bit of kis- kismet that passed through our transom here um, that we didn't plan for. Um, and you know me, I don't like deviating from a plan. In the future, yeah. um, <laughs> no, no. Um, it's going to upset the order just you know just just a little bit. Uh, so we're wedging this in, and we're doing some you know switch swapperooing. Yeah, swim um, swams. Swim swam. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is this is going to come out uh, as the same day you're listening to it, and then uh, <laughs> ordinarily, so we're not just switching or wedging this in and switching it with Tumba. Uh, next, we are going to be doing Gabriel Knight. Yes, uh, as planned. As planned. So there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, one of which is that uh, you know we're to go along, so we're concurrent with the uh, backlog killer blog that is playing along with us, um, which we we like that blog. Uh, we also wanted to kind of uh, you know we want to put these adventure games back to back because they're very different and also very high quality as well. I mean I know uh, you know Cole has not done Gabriel Knight yet, but I consider them both to be very good games, and it's going to be interesting to see because they are very different games as well. And uh, to offer that kind of uh, classic, you know, vicarious playing experience <laughs> with an adventure game. Yeah. So yeah, Gabriel Knight, that one's going to be coming out on October 4th, and we're likely going to be recording that in person because we're going to be at the uh, uh, Portland Retro Games Expo. Um, yeah, so that's, that's going to have a, it's going to be an interesting episode. It's going to have yes. a, maybe a little bit of a different energy since we're going to see each other face to face. Face to face. Face, numeral two, face. Face yes. to horrifying mask, in my <laughs> yeah. case. Uh, or in Cole's case, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Which... I was trying to imply that I was going to wear a mask. Okay. So that's where that joke was going. It's all just, we figured out why it didn't work. Let's take a deep breath. Just move on. <laughs> but after we uh, record Gabriel Knight, uh, we're going to be playing Tomba again. Yeah, fear not, Tomba fans. Fear not. We've been, Watch Out for Fireballs has been fucking you over again and again. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since late this summer, we have been yeah, fucking you yeah. over. <laughs> since earlier today, Watch Out for Fireballs has made a, a hate crime of Tomba. <laughs> but, but we no longer we were going to happily uh, run, jump, and platform our way through this uh, delightful PlayStation game. Yeah. It's $9.99 on the PlayStation Network. So good. Um, get Gabriel Knight, uh, obviously, on GOG, which we neglected to mention. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then after that, um, also on the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. We're doing a... a <laughs> I, I decided to eat a diabetic gummy bear because I thought Cole was going to announce the next game. And then he interrupted <laughs> me mid-chew. So <laughs> we've all figured out why that pass-off didn't work. Let's, just, <laughs> let's, let's, let's stop just and think about it. it. <laughs> And just move on, okay? Please. <laughs> Circle back oh, later. Oh, I'm going to continue to chew this gummy bear. Okay, okay, so ahead. I can say that. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll hold on to this one. Okay, cool. No, after Tomba, also on the PlayStation, we're going to be doing Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which we've said, we we, we we have rationalized it enough, you're going to play it and love it, <laughs> god damn it. <laughs> yeah, what are we doing? Why are we making excuses? Who exactly. are we beholden to? It's a good game. We want you to play it. So we're such sad men sometimes. Um, <laughs> most most of the times. Yeah. Um, after that, uh, we'll, we'll I'm going to say this slowly because I like how it sounds. Um, we're going to be doing Fallout. Fallout. How many how many episodes of Fallout? Two whole episodes of Fallout. A post their role playing game. Do, do do you mean Fallout One and Fallout Two, or two episodes of Fallout One? Two episodes of Fallout One. Okay. Um, yeah, so Fallout, yeah, psych, surprise, <laughs> cool. There's another, you know, 40-hour RPG you have to do. 
Um, no, it is a. This is my, maybe my favorite game of all time. I love Fallout, so okay. I, I'm greatly looking forward to, to playing that and spending a, a really good amount of time on it. Do we? Uh, do do that, that'll take us through the end of November. Do we want to say what we're going to be doing uh, for, uh, for for December? Uh, yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean because because this the, this has symmetry. Um, I don't I, I don't know how comfortable I feel with us like falling into falling into this yearly rhythm, um, but I think it's neat at least uh, at the start. Um, last year around that time we played uh, Shadowrun for the Genesis, which mm-hmm. is Gary's preferred version of the game. Um, but this year around that time, um, as the uh, as the snow begins falling, we're going to play the Super Nintendo version of Shadowrun. Yeah, totally. If you're not familiar, they are totally different games based on the same uh, pen and paper RPG, but could not play uh, more differently. And uh, I like them both a whole lot. Um, we'll see if it's similar to the Genesis one, where um, you know I'm kind of blinded by nostalgia and Cole is frustrated. I get, um, <laughs> I get, I get the sense from what I have played from it that um, I will, I will enjoy it more, um, but that also it will be harder to cheat through. Yeah, you can't cheat in this one. No. But you don't you don't need to, and I like the argument that you don't need to for the Genesis one. Like I understand, you know why you did. Like it's it's it can be hard if you don't. I understand. This one you need to less, but um, there are parts that are there are some rough edges. Yeah, but uh, it's a really cool game. Yeah. So we want you to be aware of that, so you can plan your gameplay accordingly. There's nothing good coming out after October, so so we're all set. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> We're all set for that, you, you know. We'll, we'll we'll get we'll get through, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get through what is it, Dishonored, and we'll get through Assassin's Creed Three, and we will get through um, everything. Oh, I've got an index card here. We'll get through all of those, and then we can focus ourselves on Watch Out for Fireballs. Yeah. So um, I expect the same of you that I expect that of myself, and uh, quite frankly, no less. Yeah, exactly. That that seems fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, in addition, just um, you know, a couple of uh, just announcements. We talked about being at the Portland Retro Gamer Expo. If you are anywhere near the Pacific Northwest, uh, please make this trip. It is the last weekend in September, Saturday and Sunday. Cole and I will be there all day. Uh, we are going to have a TV and Super Nintendo set up, just like you remember in your basement, um, <laughs> playing Super Mario World. You can't sit on the floor, but we will have snacks, and it will be it'll be like your own retro game challenge. You'll have two dudes sitting there. Uh, cheering you on and you can have this amazing moment of nostalgia with us um, if you'd like and we're going to do like a little mini episode about that game yeah. uh, from the show floor um, we're also going to you know uh, you know, have some stuff to give away we're, we're still hammering that out but we're definitely going to have it's gonna, there's going to be a good reason to stop by that booth mm-hmm. um, so you should come check it out that good reason is to meet us because we are interesting and, and handsome individuals. Yes. So, so mildly yes. overweight bearded men are your thing. <laughs> yeah. Please listen to watch out for fireballs. <laughs> Please um, come see us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, in addition to that, uh, we've launched a YouTube channel, um, which we talked a little bit about on the last episode, but just want to give it some proper, proper plugage. Um, I started doing that. We talked about doing NES game requests, <laughs> and I've thrown up a couple of those. Um, that's something we're going to continue to do through the future. And I have been delinquent in doing that. I apologize. It's okay. It's I mean, it's I, I. If I didn't have the time to do it, I wouldn't do it. And if you don't have the time to do it, don't. It's okay. I happen to just have uh, some extra time floating around uh, to kill. And the nice thing is that they're quick to do. Like it's not like I'm going to sit there and like, okay, what do I need to do to beat Swamp Thing? It's like, okay, I've got 15 minutes. 
let's make fun of this terrible fucking game. <laughs> um, as, as truly one of the, one of the worst, that's an awful game, but uh, we want more requests. So if you have yeah. NES games, you want us to, to play through and just kind of be silly about for 15 minutes or so, uh, please let us know. And please follow us on, on YouTube. Yeah. Um, we've also started a Twitter. So we are on Twitter at WAF podcast. Um, please follow us on Twitter. Um, we were we were throwing things up on there. Uh, we'll talk about episodes that are coming out and and little witticisms and and uh, and etc. It is yeah. what you get from Twitter, except with us. Mm-hmm. You can also follow us on Facebook for a more intimate interaction with us. We do you know we'll we'll share news articles and. Uh, comments on the games that we're playing and we will interact with you when we deem when we deem it necessary and no other and <laughs> under no other no, no under circumstances we have a court ordered minimum number of times we have to interact with you <laughs> yeah. and look your mother lo- does all the loving at you we just get you for weekends and that's all we want um <laughs> yeah i'm building the new family yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, Joey, uh, come on, uh, come on to Facebook. Come on down to the local water in Facebook. <laughs> Sit a spell. Step, um, step right up. Step right up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, in addition, you can uh, perpetually uh, help us out by uh, you know reviewing and rating us on iTunes. Um, you know, posting about it in blogs or comment sections if you like the show, and telling people you know who you think would like the show about the show. Um, that is the probably the most helpful thing. That is how we grow. Yes. Is through uh, is through your your know, friends of friends. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and you know the 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 way that the, the that the iTunes rankings work. I know that not everybody is is is, is an iTunes or Apple person. Um, I don't you know accept it as you know being a part of the just world that uh, you know we live in. But it's a fact of life <laughs> that we have to you know, acknowledge and, you know, come to compensate for, but you know, the, the rankings are really, really determined by the number of people who click that subscribe button. So even if you're using some kind of alternative podcatcher, like, you know, Instacast or something like that, um, you can subscribe to us through iTunes and that will, you know, skyrocket us up the rankings. I mean, over the past week, we have facilitated between not being on the charts for video games to being at 120 to being at 151, things like that, not to be gauche and share numbers. But there's this resurgence in, in, in interest, and I feel like we can really push it through. Um, so that is incredibly helpful in addition to the reviews and also marking certain reviews as as helpful. Yeah, yeah. I pretty much anything that is on the page that you can click that yeah. has multiple stars by it. Or is it yes? Yeah. <laughs> please, please, please click on it. Yes. Um, and you know, sorry to keep haranguing you about this. It just the, uh, it really does help is what Cole's trying to get at. Yes. Is that we've seen a noticeable, you know, it's not, uh, it's not insignificant. Yes. It's not, go- it's not going unnoticed. Neither, neither are your efforts at the tip jar. That's watch there. That's a uh, duckfeed.tv slash tip jar. Um, ignore the PayPal link, but if you're going to be buying something off of Amazon, especially with school and stuff starting up or with, um, all these Dishonored. games coming out yeah. with Dishonored coming out, you go through that link, you click that, you buy whatever you're going to buy already. We get a little kickback. It does not affect your, um, ranking. Um, and that does have a very noticeable effect on us being able to afford to host, um, the shows this both both this show and all the other shows on the on the on the network um, yeah. of which we will be adding more in the near future yeah so, that's so, something that is uh, is is very very hopefully uh, in the cards yes so yeah so keep keep watching the skies 
<laughs> good night and good luck. Yes. And uh, and what else, Cole? 419-834-WOFF. Watch out for voicemails and also uh, watch out for fireballs. Tuna heads. And you are you are talking about the original Maniac Mansion, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, will it hurt your feeling if we use the music from the NES version? <laughs> yes, deeply. Yeah. But oh, yeah. so, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it clear. That, uh, <laughs> yes. This, 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 yes, this is not the officially sanctioned music. So okay, I well, love we'll the put theme song. A, a bumper on there that says it's officially unsanctioned. Unapproved. Officially unsanctioned. Yeah, if we can get a, a a gif of you frowning and thumbs down, we can <laughs> we'll use that as the I, album. I think there's lots of pictures of me frowning on the. <laughs> that is true. <laughs>